Hello there and thank you for downloading the Agendas podcast from the 6th of December. And on the programme today, we were broadcasting to you live from COP28 at Expo City. And needless to say, we brought you all the breaking stories from the talks, including why the UAE's negotiating team is expressing cautious optimism over a global deal on reducing fossil fuels. We got into the nitty gritty of that subject uh, with Amos Wemanya, who is a just transition expert at PowerShift Africa. He's from Kenya. Plus, as the UAE announces plans to cut industrial carbon emissions by 93% by 2050, we got into all the details with His Excellency Engineer Azama Amir Fadl from the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. Our reporter Sana Katari was on the ground in the green zone checking out the sustainable startup. She reported live with all the latest innovations. And as COP28 focuses on transport, we spoke to Uber and AlphaTame Group about their efforts to go green. Plus, we discussed the revelations of the Tesla whistleblower who is casting concerns on the efficacy of their self-driving tech. And Chris McCarty, our sports editor, brought us up to date on everything on and off the pitch. For those of you who aren't necessarily following proceedings at COP28 quite as closely as us, well, you might not know that there are special sort of thematic days here where the delegates focus on certain hot topics. And some of those thematic conversations have actually been discussed here for the very first time. So, for example, over the last few days, we've had gender inequality as a hot topic and also health. But today we're getting far more traditional because uh, COP will shine a spotlight today on transport and the emissions from that sector. And I suppose the first question you might ask is, how big a problem is transport when it comes to global warming? Well, I didn't know, and I looked it up this morning, and it is, to be fair, a biggie. In fact, transport accounts for around a quarter of global carbon dioxide emissions from energy. Now, if you break that down, um, you've got air traffic accounting for 2 to 3%, and then you've got road traffic accounting for around 10% of those direct emissions. So it does feel somewhat pertinent that on the programme today, we are going to be speaking to two big transport companies, both of them very keen to be at the centre of this revolution towards a more green way of getting around. Uh, in a few minutes, we are going to be joined by the team from Alpha Tame. They are the strategic e-mobility partner for COP28. But first, joining me here in our COP28 studio is Thibault Thibaut Samphal, who is the global head of sustainability at Uber, who has travelled here to Dubai for the conference. Uh, Thibaut, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Uh, really lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have so many people in town at the moment. We feel very lucky because it just means there's so many fantastic, interesting people to talk to. Now, obviously, Uber, a growing transport company, growing in this region specifically. How concerned are you as a transport company about your emissions? Well, the short answer uh, to your question is very concerned. Um, We've been growing really fast. And um, I think, as you um, said, uh, transport emissions globally are about a quarter of all carbon dioxide emissions. And they're still growing. And they're growing very fast. So... As a company operating in the sector, even though we're a tech platform, 
there are a lot of emissions that are happening on the platform because there are 7 million uh, drivers and delivery people on the platform. And so in 2019, 2020, we realized, okay, we have a large carbon footprint and emissions footprint and it's going to grow because Uber is going to continuously grow. More and more people are not going to have a car. They're going to be using Uber. And so what is our responsibility? And what we decided was to make a number of commitments. And the, the biggest overarching commitment is to become a zero emissions platform for mobility and delivery by 2040, uh, which is 10 years ahead of the Paris Agreement. And we've got interim milestones in Europe, US and Canada. Um, and we've got some milestones here in, in uh, the Emirates and in the Middle East and Africa region. So very concerned. And we've made big commitments because of our concerns, basically. How are you going to do that? Because there's this dichotomy, isn't there, where you'll need to have your cars on the roads, you need to have your delivery bikes on the roads. How are you going to reduce the emissions? Is it about offsetting or are you going electric? Right. So, I mean, like you said, what we want to be doing is to be leaders in our industry. So the industry, when I talk about the industry, I mean ride hailing as an industry, but also delivery as an industry and overall the automotive um, and transport industry. So we want to be leaders and to be leaders you need to act and that's your question like what are you going to do, how are you going to do it. So what we've decided to do is to launch an $800 million initiative to spend by 2025 to help drivers and delivery people go electric. So. For example, in a number of regions around the world, we have a per trip incentive up to $5,000 so that when a driver is driving on Uber Green, which is one of our green products, uh, which is electric, uh, for example, here in Dubai, um, you get a a subsidy. We've done partnerships with car makers so that um, drivers have access to more affordable cars because in this transition, it's all great, but to your point, it needs to make economic sense for the drivers and for a company like us. We're a private company. And so at the moment, cars are still too expensive compared to an internal combustion engine car. So someone needs to plug the gap. So we're doing our share, but we can only do this if it's in partnership with government. And what we've done is partner with governments around the world, us and our industry, to make sure that there are subsidies in place for drivers to get access to these cars or delivery vehicles. Uh, so th- these are examples of how we're, doing, how we're doing the transition, investing with drivers, with delivery people, to make sure that they've got access to the right vehicles. I mean, ultimately, is it unrealistic for activists <laughs> and, and climate enthusiasts to say, well, you should just change your whole fleet, just change your whole fleet to go electric? Is that just... A foolhardy thing to say just a business couldn't survive under those circumstances i think it's totally fair pressure um and it's totally fair question um i think what we need to explain as a company is that when you've got seven million uh workers that are using your platform on a daily basis and they're using assets a car that are expensive it's not like a house but it's the second most expensive um asset that a family owns and so for an entrepreneur, that an independent entrepreneur, which is the vast majority of, of, of drivers on Uber are independent entrepreneurs, they're not large fleets, um, it's, it's a big expense. So an average internal combustion engine car costs $20,000, uh, for example. An electric car will cost twenty five to 30000 So they need to find the, the money. And up, upfront capital is still the number one blocker for... Uh, drivers to go electric, then the number two blocker is electric charging infrastructure. So even if we did, as you said, 
change the entire fleet of vehicles overnight to electric, there wouldn't be the infrastructure in place in terms of chargers, in terms of the grid, uh, the grid capacity to be able to charge these vehicles. So it's totally a fair question, but we need to, we, we can only act step by step. We're going fast though. Uh, so we're not, we're not, uh, we want to be leaders, like I said. And so we've already got 75,000 electric vehicles on the platform globally. Um, in some cities like London, they're leading one in five rides is already electric. In places like, like the Emirates, it's uh, already one in 10. Uh, so it is going really fast. The, the acceleration is such that we've seen a 2x factor growth since last year and 10x since three years ago. So we're going as fast as we can. Um, and, and maybe to finish my answer, there are a number of large fleet companies on our platform, uh, including in, in, in the Middle East, including in the UAE. And we work in partnership with these fleet companies so that they electrify fast, faster because they don't have the obstacles that an independent entrepreneur would have. They have access to capital. They can mobilize this capital, acquire cars faster, and therefore uh, transition their fleets to electric faster. That's really interesting. So you're expecting to see countries like the UAE and, and others in the Middle East, you know, these very rich countries, ultimately, being able to make this transfer, this rev- basically create this revolution faster than maybe other capital cities. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're still learning. Um, we're, still, we're still seeing what countries do what. I think, like I said, a lot of the progress is hugely dependent on policies. So what we want to do is act in partnership with policymakers, governments, government of the UAE, for example, to explain to them what are the constraints, like upfront capital, um, charging infrastructure, um, con- concretely speaking, what models of cars do we have access to in a given region because of the tariffs, etc. And so um, what we're seeing is that indeed a number of regions, including the UAE, want to be at the forefront of this revolution. And for example, since you talk about the UAE, we've made a new commitment because we're seeing the authorities act in a way that is very positive in terms of the environment. And and we made a new commitment in the UAE that by 2026, 25% of the fleets on Uber will be electric. Uh, so that's the commitment here in the UAE. In Africa, we've got um, Electric Boda, which is a service on two wheels where you're getting picked up in, on, a, on an electric uh, emop, on an electric moped. We've also launched a delivery. So, uh, for example, in South Africa, in Cape Town, we've got a service called Uber Package where you can deliver a package to your friends or for business on electric vehicles only. So we're seeing different uh, trends across different regions. Uh, but definitely in the UAE, we're very keen and we've made this commitment by 2026 and we, we intend to beat it. Do you think that this autonomous revolution, if and when it arrives, this is this idea that none of us are going to own cars in the future because they'll all be autonomous. They'll just drive around like little pods, picking us up and then dropping us off and then toddling off and finding somebody else. And you won't have parked cars and so you won't need as many cars. Do you think that that revolution is going to have a huge impact on emissions? Do you think that might be the turning point in some ways? So, yeah, you're referring to autonomous, so maybe for for everyone listening to us, I think autonomous is basically cars that are self-driving. Yes, exactly. You just tap a button, get a ride, and therefore you don't need to own a car. Um, I do think it's going to be a huge revolution in the midterm. Um, technology is getting ready. I was in San Francisco recently. I did a ride in an autonomous car. It's, 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 
it's spectacular how much it's progressed. So I think it's going to come fast. That said, um, it will t take some time because the technology is ready, but I think acceptance by people, policymakers, to make this happen in all cities globally will take time. I see this as taking a decade or maybe two decades to happen. So it will be a gradual thing. Uh, and for now, autonomous vehicles are extremely expensive. And one thing for us that is very important is access. What we want is to give access to workers to the platform so that they can work and earn money. And for the riders and people who are, at, who are ordering things on the delivery side, we want access in terms of affordable, uh, pri affordable products. And so our Uber Green product, which we have here in, in Dubai and the UAE, um, and which we've, we've also launched in Jordan and we aim to launch across the Middle East and Africa region, um, is priced as the same price as, as our most affordable product. And so we want the Green Revolution not to be exclusive of people, but inclusive of everyone, um, and, and to be, uh, for our products, green products to be the most affordable on the platform. And if you took a, an autonomous ride and put it on the platform today, like we do in Phoenix, in Arizona, in the U.S., for example, um, it's still very expensive to operate. So mm -hmm. it wouldn't be quite affordable. So I think it is going to come. It is going to replace a lot of car ownership because, frankly, why would you need that second or third car and maybe that first car if in many cities you've got public transportation, you've got bikes that are available, you've got uh, e-scooters, uh, and you've got autonomous rides that can take you anywhere in a very short amount of time. I think it is going to replace a lot of cars. And I think all of these uh, autonomous vehicles will be electric. To your, your question, I think all of them will be electric for sure. Um, but it is going to take a bit of time. So yes is the short answer, but I would see this as happening in different, in, in different phases. I've only got another 30 seconds left with you, but I really want to slip this question in because obviously as a... If, if you're working with policymakers on developing access to certain types of cars in certain types of jurisdictions, then you've potentially got quite strong buying power. I know that you might not necessarily be buying the, the taxis, your, the future taxis yourself. But obviously, there's a competition going on at the moment in the electric car market. Yes. Do you have a preference as at Uber or are you, are you remaining completely neutral on which cars you like? Um, we're, we're remaining completely neutral. Uh, what we want is access and affordability. And what matters to us is for the cars to be cars that are affordable to the uh, driver and cars that allow us to have a product that is priced at an affordable price so that everyone can use Uber, uh, whether a taxi or a private hire vehicle. Uh, so we are neutral. And what we're seeing is that different car makers have got different strategies. They're electrifying their fleets at different speeds. What we are encouraging them to do is to electrify faster because we need a lot of cars. Like to your point, we've got 75,000 on the platform today, which makes Uber the, the biggest electric uh, uh, platform in the world for mobility outside of China. Uh, but we want to go much, much faster and we want to go to the 7 million that I told you. So um, we're neutral. We want car makers to make great, great products, but most of, most of all, affordable cars so that drivers can get into these cars and transport you and me. Very interesting indeed. Thibault Samphal, thank you so much for thank your you time. Thank you very much for having me. Really lovely to have you in studio in the Blue Zone right here at COP28 at Expo City. It's quite a process to get into the Blue Zone. Uh, so we're very, very grateful to, be, to you for coming in. Thank you no, very thank much. Thank you very much. 
From Expo City Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. Hello there. Welcome back to the program. Yep, as you just heard, we are indeed coming to you live from a rather chilly studio at COP28. And we are discussing transport on the program today and those emissions caused by that sector, which actually account for a quarter of global carbon dioxide emissions from energy. So how is the sector going to reduce its carbon footprint? Well, to discuss this, I'm delighted to say I'm joined on Teams now by a representative of one of the biggest car companies here in the UAE. Antoine Bart is the vice president for Alpha Tame Automotive. Uh, they represent companies as big as Volvo, Merlot, Linda, Toyota, Dodge and Jeep here in the UAE and they're also the strategic e-mobility partner for COP28. Antoine, it's lovely to have you join us on Teams. How are you? Very good morning. I'm very good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me this morning. It's such a pleasure to have you join us on the line. Now, CO2 emissions, clearly a serious problem for the automotive industry. How is Alpha Tame Automotive working to resolve that issue? I think um, emission uh, globally is uh, is a concern for the for the society. It's uh, it's clear that uh, the automotive industry is playing a part, and uh, we at Alfutain Group are working very closely um, in order to uh, tackle this important dimension. Um, we are working very closely with um, the various entities at the government level. Uh, if you take a, a few examples. Uh, we were one of the, if not the first, to introduce uh, alternative uh, powertrain in the uh, in the country because we've launched um, a Toyota hybrid uh, powertrain back in 2008. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, building on these foundations, we've handed over a fleet of the hybrid vehicles to uh, Dubai Taxi Corporation, uh, which has a move which contributed to a 44% increase in the green fleet uh, of taxis in the UAE. Uh, and then uh, we accelerated because um, uh, over the last few years, um, we've just uh, thought about how we can better contribute to this change. And we've created a dedicated company, Alfutem Electric Mobility Company, uh, in order to uh, de- deliver the unique end-to-end electric offering to, uh, to our customer. And uh, what is important is that in this company, we are not focusing only on the product and the and uh, the vehicles, but we are looking at the overall ecosystem, the electric building, uh, the charging, because we have a dedicated uh, charging technology with charge to move, uh, including also the training, because it's a massive change in the uh, industry. And we need to train uh, our technician, but we also need to support the society by training some of the uh, uh, the workforce, such as the firemen, etc., where they are going to face some electric vehicle. And uh, we've built up a dedicated IMI-certified electric mobility training center uh, for electric and hybrid uh, after-sales. So we are really looking at the overall ecosystem around the uh, electric mobility. I have to say, that is genuinely very comprehensive, like right down to how to deal with potential sort of fires in electric cars. Um, I mean, why do you think it is that more people aren't making the swap to electric? I have uh, made the swap, but, um, but 
but it was quite an expensive move. We managed to get our car secondhand, but nevertheless, it still was a more expensive purchase than, for example, if I'd bought a secondhand Volvo, which is actually what I owned beforehand. I think uh, there are various dimensions uh, on this. Uh, the first dimension is probably uh, the, the lack of understanding from the public about uh, electric mobility. And what does that mean in terms of moving from an international internal combustion engine to uh, an electric uh, vehicle. So we have a role to play in this in educating uh, uh, the public. There are some uh, anxiety uh, around the electric vehicle. If you take, for instance, uh, the range, because you need to charge by definition. Uh, so some people are a bit nervous about the, the range that they can have on their car. The uh, after-sales dimension, the uh, residual value when they buy a car and when they will want to sell it afterwards, how that's going to, um, uh, to look like. Uh, you would be surprised we've launched a survey a few weeks ago. We've done some homework to understand in the market what would be the EV readiness from the customers. And uh, we ended up seeing that 63% of the customers are looking at changing to a EV, electric vehicle, um, their main transportation within the coming two years. So uh, that was a, a very positive result on our side. And uh, 70% uh, of the customers also say that the ability to charge because they consider that in the coming five years, uh, they will be able to find uh, a charger every few kilometers away from where they are. So the range anxiety is, uh, is decreasing and is not necessarily a, a problem any longer. So I think that's a combination of educating and uh, getting a proper explanation of uh, how the, the end user can properly end use an electric vehicle. Do you think there will be a point when all of the charging points are uniform? Because at the moment, that just isn't the case. And as an electric car owner, that range anxiety, I'm telling you, it is real. Um, and, and you get quite nervous if you don't know where your specific charger is or your charging point is, where, of course, people with petrol engines can just park at any petrol station and, and fuel up? I think we are, we are at the beginning of the, um, of the electrification journey for the industry, and there's going to be uh, some uh, harmonization in terms of uh, the standards and the ability to, uh, to, to charge. There is, um, uh, and we are lucky to be part uh, or, or to live in the UAE uh, with a government which is setting the path with a very clear direction with the uh, Net Zero uh, Plan 2050, and uh, we can expect to have a, a significant expansion in the uh, charging capacity in the country in a, in a relatively short term. On this one, uh, as market leader, we've take, uh, we took a pledge in uh, Alfutain Group where we said that uh, we will have 50% which would be electrified by 2030, and we will take an active part into the uh, uh, charging uh, station expansion because we will uh, deliver uh, 10% of the charging station by 2030 as well. So you can expect that this is going to expand very rapidly. So it's been a great pleasure to have you join us on the line. I could speak to you for about another half hour on this topic alone. It's certainly uh, my wheelhouse when it comes to electric cars. So I uh, really appreciate your time, really appreciate uh, you telling us all about the efforts that are being made by Alpha Tame Automotive, who are, of course, the strategic e-mobility partner for COP28. But Antoine Bart, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank great. you very much.
Thank you indeed. A great pleasure to have Antoine join us there on the line. Vice President for Alpha Tame Automotive. From Expo City Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. And yes, indeed, we are broadcasting live from COP28. But we're also keeping a close eye on other stories making headlines around the world, including this one, which is the latest on autonomous cars, because a former Tesla employee has told the BBC that he He believes that the AI tech that is used to control the company's autonomous vehicles isn't safe enough to be used on public roads. Now, the whistleblower is a guy called Lukas Krupski, and he's leaked data on customer complaints about Tesla's braking and self-driving software. And he said that his concerns were ignored by the company. Now, so far, Tesla's not responded to comments, uh, to requests for comment, but Elon Musk, the chief executive there, has long hailed its self-driving tech as a key selling point for their vehicles. Now, it feels to me like the car companies have been trying to get this tech right for so long that it's, you know, by now you'd have expected some sort of breakthrough in many ways. And I wanted to find out why it is taking so long. So I'm delighted to say I'm now joined on the line by Dr. Samir Kishore, who is the program coordinator of the MSc Robotics Program at Middlesex University, Dubai. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Kishore. How are you? I hope all is well with you. So tell me why... Well, first of all, are you surprised to hit, to read the claims of this whistleblower? Hi, Georgia. Thank you for having me. No, I I uh, can see why uh, you know this is making the news. Uh, as someone who's working with sort of uh, sensors and autonomous navigation, autonomous vehicles here in academia as well, uh, it's a problem that we're all trying to solve the best way possible. And again, without making it too complex, the thing with sensors is that they never tell you the whole truth right that's the there's always noise with sensors so what we're trying to do is trying to figure out what is the actual sort of information that is being given to us and ignore all the sort of uh, noise that is coming along with the sensor so the the concept of full self-driving is a, a challenge a technical challenge that i wouldn't expect to be solved you know a hundred percent anytime soon what are the components that go into a car self-driving i imagine you know there's gps there's the sensors that you mentioned are there lots of ingredients to it so uh tesla themselves have gone through about i think four or five iterations of hardware and software systems since 2015 i think they've tried various kinds of sensors radar lidars there's ultrasonic sensors as well i don't want to uh, go into uh, detail about the hardware but now at this point they're working on a purely camera based system which could be tricky since on you know days with bad weather for example the eyes of the car get obscured and it it was quite uh, again elon musk being elon musk that he made a unilateral decision to pursue this camera only approach and apparently told members of the autopilot team that humans could drive with only two eyes that and that means that cars should be able to drive with cameras alone uh, that wasn't very well received in the in the at least in the academic uh, community because this analogy doesn't really work uh, you know as well as he might claim that is that is very interesting indeed as a driver of a tesla i have to say i probably overuse the self-driving facility a bit too much i'd really 
love it and I, and I definitely relax when I'm in the car now in this country you are required to keep your hands on the steering wheel and, and in fact Tesla the car sort of shouts at you if you if you for example relax for too long or it doesn't feel the pressure of your hands on the wheel after a few minutes or so but certainly I am relying very heavily on it do you think that maybe I'm I need to be more careful after this this sort of announcement from the whistleblower I mean it the, the announcement isn't surprising, to be honest. I mean, autopilot is what it says. Even though the flights are going on autopilot, you still have the pilots at the uh, at the console ready, you know, for any sort of situation. So you do need to be present. Uh, the the hardware and software again is not ready, which is what the whistleblower mentioned, and that's you know likely true as well. It's it's a uh, I guess it's an incremental process is what I would like to call it. So, you know, the things that are working well with you, you know, you're in control, but you're letting a little bit of the autonomy take over. And as we progress, I think it's going to get better. The the, the thing with autonomous self-driving is the unpredictability. I, I believe that once, you know, all cars are being driven autonomously, things would be a lot more predictable. It's like as long as we have humans doing unpredictable stuff all over the roads, that's where we, you know, have to sort of model that unpredictability into the self-driving platform in order to somehow account for it. But that's, you know, ironic to be able to be prepared for unpredictability. Yeah, if we had everyone driving in a straight line, that would be brilliant. My Tesla keeps me bang in the centre of the lane and then it's other people who are sort of swerving around like they're, well, they're usually on their phones, let's be honest. Uh, Dr. (laughs) Samir Kishore, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Absolutely fascinating to speak to you about uh, self-driving software and ultimately how long we have got to wait until we have these fully self-driving cars that I still dream about on a nightly basis. From Expo City Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. And we are live from COP28, just about. Uh, Georgia Tolly here, uh, presenting to you live from COP28. This is your agenda programme, uh, juggling a few things here on site. But there's no doubt about it that there is a real buzz. And that comes in part after the UAE's negotiating team expressed what they're calling cautious optimism over the likelihood of a global commitment on reducing fossil fuels. Now, That would be very big news indeed, and it is what the consensus negotiators are punting for. But what observers here are most interested in is going to be the language of that agreement, because while it might just sound like semantics, you know, one person's word is another person's, you know, anyway, simple semantics. The question of whether officials commit to phasing down or phasing out fossil fuels is critical. So I'll just say that again, phasing down or phasing out. You can tell that there is a difference, but that who would have thought that that difference could have such wide, far-reaching repercussions? Because either wording would mark a historic first for COP negotiations, but there is a significant difference between the two. And to find out why that is important, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now in our studio by Amos Wemanya, who leads on the just energy transition at the activist group Power Shift Africa, which is based in Kenya. Amos joins me in our studio. I'm just going to work out which mic you're on, hopefully that one. Um, Amos, lovely to see you here. How are you? I'm good. It's my pleasure to be here. It is fantastic indeed to have you in our studio here in the Blue Zone. First of all, can you explain to me what the difference between a phase out and a phase down of fossil fuels is and why is it so important? 
You see, um, we're living in a climate emergency already. Uh, communities in Africa are on the front line of this crisis. When I was coming here, Kenya is currently facing the worst floods. And we've already lost hundreds of lives and people are being displaced from their homes. And I think uh, it didn't have to take us this long to figure out that um, this being fueled by fossil fuels. Uh, um, uh, the fact that we are still debating on whether to face her or face down, I don't think uh, we shouldn't be doing that because the window of opportunity for us to take action, to be able to limit a catastrophic climate future is now. Um, uh, what facing down means, that means that we are going to continue using, uh, um, but just reduce. Uh, but what we should be doing actually, we should be taking bold and concrete decisions around fossil fuel. Um, uh, uh, one, stop the expansion of new fossil fuels. Uh, two, we need to have a plan on how to move out of the existing fossil fuels. Uh, not just reducing, but a clear plan that needs to be urgent, that needs to take into consideration that um, the window of opportunity for us to act is quickly closing. Do you think enough emphasis is being placed on that obviously these talks are taking place here in the uae a fossil fuel producing nation actually um this is the first cop that we have huge and massive lobbies uh for the fossil fuel uh, to continue uh, um, uh, uh polluting and fueling the crisis we have um actually uh, statistics already show that we have 2400 lobbies uh in this uh conference and uh, i wouldn't imagine uh, a World Health Conference having uh, tobacco, uh, for example, lobbyists. Because what is the cause of the climate crisis? Is us burning oil, us burning gas and coal. And uh, I think uh, this scope will be historic if it was to take a bold step uh, to be able to help humanity it's a question of saving lives. It's a question of saving societies uh, by taking this bold decision to uh, face out fossil fuels. So despite the presence of those lobbyists, do you feel that progress is still being made? Do you feel hopeful about the consensus negotiations that are currently being hosted here in Dubai? The only thing that we can have in life is hope. So um, uh, the text that came out um, yesterday uh, in the Global Stock Tech, uh, still has those considerations. And uh, we're hoping that there, there, there are three options that have been presented. And uh, we're hoping that um, the language around abetted and abetted, uh, we shouldn't be debating around those things. Uh, I think my hope is that in the final decision, uh, the negotiators will be able to find reason to be able to save humanity and adopt a language that seeks uh, to find a plan for phasing out existing fossil fuel um, industry. What um, are your major sort of concerns in these negotiations? You know, are you, con are you worried that certain parties, and when I say parties, that sort of UN speak for countries, are you, are you concerned that certain countries might block these decisions, these, these agreements? My main concern is uh, equity and justice. Um, I think um, there are countries that uh, their economies are dependent on fossil fuel, uh, but they are not historical polluters. Actually, they are victims of pollution. I would speak some of African countries, for example, whose economies are very much dependent on fossil fuel. I think in this facing out, in the transition process, we need to be careful so that we protect 
our livelihoods. We protect communities that are dependent on fossil revenue uh, and, and, and ensure that we are setting up new systems um, that are able to socially and economically transform these communities into this new economy. We've had the announcement of this loss and damage fund. It came literally on, on almost day one of the COP28 conference. Um, it, 750 million put into that fund. I've heard protesters on site here calling for billions, not millions. Actually, trillions. Trillions. You think, you think, so, you, so, so far you feel that this is a drop, drop in the ocean, I guess. No, it's a step in the good direction um, uh, already to have uh, operationalization of the loss and damage fund. Actually, um, the call for this fund uh, has been alone. Uh, we've taken long time to be able to realize this. And for it to be realized on the first day of COP28, I think that was historic. And it's first uh, of, of such a kind to have a decision on the first day of the COP. So um, this, I would give it to the negotiators, especially the host uh, country. But I think um, um, the pledges that have been made, uh, they are not sufficient. Uh, we have statistics on what would be needed uh, to be able to address the losses and damages that are being caused by the crisis. So if we are to meet this, then I think um, uh, countries that have means and capacity needs to step up uh, to be able to provide this needed support for the communities on the front line. But it's a good uh, step. Um, uh, we can only build on this and make it better. Sarah, it's been a great pleasure to have you join us in the studio. Thank you very much indeed. In some ways, we've just taken a bit of a stock take of the conference so far. So we'd be delighted to have you join us again in the studio a bit later on in the conference. Obviously, tomorrow is a rest day here. And then we get into the really tricky bits of the negotiations, which, of course, often overrun, don't they? So um, thank you very much indeed. You've just been hearing the voice of Amos Wamanya. He leads on Just Energy Transition at the campaign group Power Shift Africa, which is based in Kenya. But so thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been thank a great you so much. From Expo City Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. It's fair to say that we are getting quite used to big announcements with big numbers coming out of the conference here. But I think this is a really key one because it's going to directly impact business and construction right here because the UAE has announced it's going to cut industrial carbon emissions by 93% by 2050. 93%. And it's called the Industrial Decarbonization Roadmap. And it's basically focusing on the manufacturing and construction, construction sectors. And they're really tricky set sectors to decarbonize. Things like cement production, iron production, steel, aluminium production, all really sort of carbon heavy industries that are are quite sort of technical, quite scientific. So it feels like a really big target. It feels like in some ways a harder target than what we've been talking about earlier on the program when it comes to cutting, for example, transport emissions. So let's get into the details of this strategy. I'm delighted to say I'm joined in our studio here in the Blue Zone by His Excellency Engineer Azama Amir Fadel, who is from the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. We really appreciate you making the time to join us here in the studio, sir. Thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, and I'm going to get dive straight into it because I want to get the details of this strategy. How is it going to reduce carbon emissions? How are you going to achieve such ambitious targets by 2050? Sure. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that uh, question. Well, uh, firstly, let me start, uh, uh, you know, with uh, our over 
let's say, arcing uh, strategy. You know, since the inception of the strategy, uh, or of the ministry, sorry, we've actually launched our national strategy, which is uh, the National Strategy for Industrial and Advanced Technology. And a key pillar of that uh, strategy has uh, always been sustainability. So, uh, yes, uh, exactly right. Uh, just yesterday, we've announced our uh, industrial decarbonization uh, roadmap, and uh, it is in alignment with uh, the strategy, the national strategy for, for industry that we've launched uh, earlier. And it's also in alignment with the net zero strategy uh, 2050 of the UAE. And uh, if we look into that uh, uh, roadmap, it really uh, focuses on uh, six sectors uh, uh, that this roadmap will be focusing on, especially we're talking here about the cement uh, uh, industry, we're talking about steel, we're talking about aluminum, petrochemicals, and other uh, uh, hard to abate uh, heavy uh, industries. And, uh, you know, th- we, we've got very, very high commitment and very, uh, let's say, uh, promising uh, targets to achieve a 93% in terms of reduction by 2050. Uh, so we're talking about almost 2.9 giga million, uh, uh, giga, uh, million tons of, uh, uh, gigatons, sorry, of uh, CO2 emissions by uh, 2050 cumulatively. And that's a, a very, I would say, uh, you know, uh, aspirational uh, target, and, and, and we are committed to it. Uh, this, uh, it, going a little bit more into the technicality, uh, this would mean that we will go down from 103 million tons of CO2 emissions uh, today, or on the, based on the numbers in 2019, to about 7 million tons in 2050. Wow. So that's a reduction uh, of uh, about 96 million tons uh, in terms of what is the industrial sector is, uh, uh, is emitting. I mean, that is a, a massive commitment. It's a staged process, though, isn't it? You've got an actual roadmap where, with steps, with staging down, basically. Definitely, definitely. So, so let's get into how we're going to do this then. You know, definitely right. We're going to actually have a kind of a, a phase uh, approach uh, where we're going to achieve uh, this by 2050. And uh, in the meantime of launching these targets, we've also launched a set of enablers in terms of incentives and levers and policies to enable us to uh, uh, accelerate achieving uh, this uh, this target. Uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, we've uh, already actually issued a couple of policies to uh, support uh, uh, this direction. We've uh, uh, launch, for example, the in-country value, uh, the green ICV or the green in-country value, which actually uh, would uh, promote companies who are actually uh, producing uh, green products and, and, and actually adopting green uh, measures and criteria within their facilities to actually have preference uh, in terms of procurement, government procurement, and all the entities were actually uh, applying ICV within their procurement. So this will definitely stimulate, uh, uh, you know, in this regard. Also, we've also launched our uh, industrial uh, technology transformation index uh, as a, a practical, pragmatic framework uh, that will direct factories, especially in hard-to-abate industries in how to actually reduce their emissions and become more efficient, more productive. So this is another program that we've actually launched. Also another program that uh, we are very uh, uh, happy with is the uh, uh, Make It in the Emirates program. Uh, With that program, uh, we are actually trying to uh, promote uh, and attract 
uh, investors in the country, especially focusing on sustainable uh, industries uh, within these uh, sectors that you're going to focus uh, on and also provide a set of incentives and enablers uh, for those potential investors to come and set their sustainable uh, activities in the UAE. So several government temptations, I suppose, uh, sort of encouragements to get the private sector either to come here and build their green tech or to encourage uh, more businesses, to encourage businesses to become greener themselves. Do you feel like the the private sector is on board on this already? Are they are they ready to make this uh, transition? Definitely. Uh, one one important thing that I should mention here that we've actually created this roadmap along with all the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. This includes government stakeholders, private sector stakeholders. So the private sector has been in the center of this. We've uh, been working closely with our stakeholders in the private sector and the semi-government in the past few days, especially those who are uh, in those hard-to-abate industries, on firstly, uh, uh, is this target uh, achievable? Is it practical? The phase approach that we've actually int- we introduced, is it practical? So most of the, uh, uh, I would say, uh, the technicalities and the approach and how to get there has definitely come after brainstorming this with the uh, private uh, sector. So we talked about the carrot, the, the fact that they're more likely to get jobs if they're greener, that they're more likely to get subsidies if they're greener. Is there any stick? Are you going to be uh, tell, you know, bringing in fines, for example, to industries that fail to reduce their emissions? Uh, t- t- today, as uh, uh, we've launched the targets, today we're focusing on the enablers uh, side to start uh, definitely uh, with. Uh, uh, no doubt, uh, you know, the UAE uh, being... Uh, part of the regional ecosystem and global ecosystem will have to also uh, uh, follow this roadmap with different uh, policies uh, to try to accelerate uh, this target for sure. But uh, definitely what we've been focusing on in the beginning is actually deciding what the target is, what is the direction, where we're heading, and also uh, uh, kind of uh, make the ecosystem aware of the enablers and the incentives that are going to come along Uh, with these uh, targets. Really interesting stuff. And thank you so much for joining us in our studio to talk through those enablers, talk through that incredibly ambitious target. And I know that you're now going to go out uh, and explore the rest of the Blue Zone. You've got documents that need signing. You've got meetings that you need to go to. Uh, So thank you so much for making time for us here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. You've just been hearing the voice of His Excellency Engineer Azama Amir Fatal from the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. Sir, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. From Expo City, Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. We're live from COP28. And as you know, uh, we're here in the Blue Zone, where the government dignitaries and officials are having all those very important conversations, trying to come to a consensus negotiation. But of course... There is a lot more going on site here as well, with all sorts of innovation on display. And our roving reporter, Sana Katari, is out and about on the site now. She joins me on the phone, which is this one. Hello. Hi. Where are you? Uh, So, yeah, I'm currently in the green zone right now. Fantastic. What have you been getting up to there? 
So, yes, uh, I came into the green zone and immediately came across the startup village, which is just tens of startups scattered all around the surreal fountain. And it was just it's just been fascinating. The first one I came across was right next to the technology and innovation hub because I was intrigued by what looked like a tiny helicopter just perched outside, uh, cordoned off by some red uh, some red cordons. So it was, in fact, a single-seater electric helicopter by the company Fly Now Aviation. So I spoke to their COO and founder, Yvonne Winter, to ask her the question that is on, I think, everybody's minds. When will these be zooming about the UAE? We are the first OEM in history in aviation that really goes for mass production. So in five years from now, I'm certain here in Dubai, you have a lot of these devices flying, which hopefully eases a lot the traffic here. So our vehicle is net zero, fully run on battery. And then we go back and forth as a kind of a public transportation, or you can as well say a taxi. And we don't need infrastructure, no roads, no bridges, no tunnels, and so forth. So we can really contribute to a more sustainable and joyful future. Hang on a second. If they're going to be zooming around above us, aren't they going to be sort of horrible buzzing things? Aren't they loud? I mean, yeah, the idea could be that, but they have a few versions. So the single seater, which I saw, the double seater and the cargo version, and the latter is the biggest and still can do a 200 kilo payload with a 50 kilometer range at only 55 decibels. So that's like the sound of about a dishwasher. That's not very loud. And they're about 150 meters above your head. But speaking of sound, there was another startup I came across that just boggled the mind, which uses sound waves to convert solar power into electric power. So the solar space booth is located right next to a massive installation of what looks like mirrored satellite dishes. Uh, I was curious, so I spoke to their founder and CEO, David Villy, who explained the technology. So first, those optical mirrors are telescopes. And instead of pointing them to the stars, we point them to the sun concentrating the solar light with with telescopes. Second part is we take that heat at about 1,000 degrees Celsius that's generated at the focal point, then we convert that into sound waves, and then sound waves into electrical power or cooling at very, very high efficiencies. But what we are really concentrating is the cooling aspect and also desalination. We're desalinating the water by freezing it. Then we drop the atmospheric pressure and then it starts evaporating. So you get a pharmaceutical grade clean water on one hand, uh, but no chemicals, no, no, no filters, nothing. And no residue, right? And cuts down the cost by three. I have to say, it sounds like you've been to the coolest area of COP28. So much to discover there. You know, you've got the solar power, you've got clean energy, you've got desalination. Now, that is a, a lot of projects in one, isn't it? So, yeah, this is actually the work of the University of Arizona and NASA. They've actually come up with a lot of projects that they've just come up with a tech of, and they're slowly beginning pilot programs for. It's just it's fascinating to be able to see the tech and how it's being made before it's being implemented as well. But then I found a project right next door that was a little bit more developed. And instead of focusing on outer space, it focused on the sea. 
So I met Econcrete Tech, a company that's developed an admixture, which is a chemical basically that turns concrete non-toxic. I got to speak to Alvar Chavosos Cleveria, who is a project manager of Econcrete, and he explained how it works, but also why it's so important to marine sustainability. We can promote biodiversity from concrete structures. How? A marine biologist designed an admixture that is an additive to the standard grey cement. So if you mix or admixture, which is called ECOPI, the resulting unit crystallizes in a way that the toxic components coming from the standard grey concrete are contained and kept within the structure. So you first are keeping carbon within the structure and then you are avoiding the structure to release these chemicals, these toxic chemicals, so that these larvae and organs can attach better. That is amazing. That's basically like retrofitting concrete. They just add it in to the ready mixture. Is that right? Yes, exactly. But their aim is still to bring microorganisms back into the water. So outside of just this concrete mixture, they basically want everything that makes our corals a species, that makes our marine life lich, to be able to thrive. But they also provide, so that's what they do. They actually also provide molds for the concrete that are best designed to promote biodiverse growth. So like they basically have these ridged rocks and structures and they, they sell those molds as well. So it's amazing to see that on every front, water, land, air, there are so many movements in the sustainability front here just at COP on the ground. Sana, that is absolutely fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on the agenda today. Uh, You've just been hearing the voice of Sana Katari. She is our roving ARN reporter out and about right here at COP28. And uh, for the most part, we're sending her into the green zone, where I have to say it really does sound completely fascinating. And all of those uh, exhibits that you just saw, Sana, they're, they're open to the public as well, aren't they? So anyone can go down if you have a ticket for the green zone. Exactly. Really good yes, stuff. Yeah, they're all around the real fountain. That's yes. brilliant. Well, I don't know where we're going to send you next, but no doubt you will be out and about, and we look forward to your report right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8 tomorrow. Sana Kataria there, our ARN reporter. From Expo City, Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. Hello there, welcome back. And as we've discussed, today is Transport Day here at COP28. And of course, one of the biggest and most significant changes that we are seeing to transport right here in the UAE is, of course, the arrival of passenger trains because that new Etihad rail network might already be ferrying freight across the UAE, but we are eagerly awaiting news of when those passenger trains will follow. But while the tracks are extending here at a really rapid pace, on a global level, industry experts say that rail deserves more attention as a really good sustainable solution to transport. And and to that end, a major new campaign is calling for access to fossil fuel-free transport to be doubled across the world by 2030. But what exactly would that look like? Well, earlier, producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with Lucy Anderton, who is head of sustainability at the International Union of Railways. And she explained 
why rail has such an important role to play. Railways are a really important climate solution. So they're the most energy efficient, the most electrified form of mobility, and they can move a lot of people and a lot of goods without using too much space and too much energy. And, and, and really, they're much more accessible as a public transport to most people. So it's, it's not only an energy efficiency transition, it's also a just transition, so really helping people to move in a way that's much more sustainable and can meet our climate goals, right? So we think rails is, is a massive opportunity. But in the, in the COP conversations, often we're talking about the, in transport, the hard-to-abate forms of transport. So, so talking about the problems, talking about road, talking about maritime, talking about aviation as the, as the big polluters. But we forget to talk about the real solutions, the, the ones that are already really advanced, walking, cycling, public transport, railway freight, and, and the massive opportunity there. And, and so we, we're here really talking about what we can do to get more people, more goods moved by rail and so we're here as the voice of railways and our members who are all over the world trying to uh, to attract more people to trains. Of course rail is a huge talking point here locally we've seen the launch of Etihad Rail that's already operating on freight that's going to be carrying passengers in the future. How does the industry receive that the the site of an entirely new rail network being built as we're seeing here locally? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's got to happen. It's got to happen in every, in every region, absolutely. We need that kind of expansion and investment into, into new rail connectivity. So it's really exciting to see Etihad developing, and we're looking forward to seeing the passenger services coming in and adding to that. But already in the freight space, um, you know, moving from heavy goods vehicles through to, to rail can make a massive change. Whether it's electric or diesel, it's going to be so much more energy efficient and more resilient, really. Really to, to use rail. And now that we're seeing that, what does a successful expansion to rail look like? What do the countries who are getting it right do that we can learn from? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because there have been mistakes made where you could say, well, we want this railway, but if you forget, for example, to connect to other forms of transport, then it doesn't always work. So it's really thinking strategically and systematically about that investment. So where is the demand and how, how are going to people going to connect to other forms of transport to finish their journey? Because it's unlikely you're going to take the train or right to the place you want to go to or, or right to your home. So you're always going to have to at least walk. Uh, and, and, and really we want to sort of, uh, we see the best examples are integrating walking, cycling infrastructure, linking in really well to other forms of public transport like buses or trams. And again, with, with freight as well, linking into ports, with, with really great digital ways that, that can connect in the most seamless, smooth ways. So that it's easy to do that. And so people are choosing rail for the, for the long distance pieces, at least, as a part of a, a, an ecosystem of, uh, of sustainable mobility. So that, that's what really works. And in terms of both from an individual perspective and from a freight perspective, what do you see as being the key challenges in that transition from heavy goods vehicles from maritime to rail what are the key things that we need to get right yeah so so one thing is policy and real targets because i think certainly both at sub-regional city but definitely at national level having a real target say yes we want more sustainable mobility we want to shift this much traffic in this amount of time to rail to walking to cycling to public transport and being really clear how you can do that so so it's it's not good enough to just say 
oh, we want more public transport. You have to be really clear with specific targets, real clear, comprehensive policy that will actually incentivize that shift. So really making sure that people are encouraged to make the right choice and the easiest choice is the sustainable choice. So, so it's really that policy piece. The second really is, is around making sure then your, your fiscal um, structure works the same way. So so we're talking about moving subsidies from fossil fuels to subsidising the really sustainable forms of transport instead. Uh, and so we're talking about investment. We're talking about long-term investment in public transport, in rail freight, because um, it's not something that can happen overnight. It needs that long-term commitment to really invest in this new infrastructure. We've seen a lot of announcements already at this COP, quite early in proceedings, earlier than we would normally expect. Transport is, is just coming onto the agenda now. What would you like to see? What do you hope to see over the coming days in terms of transport initiatives, agreements being made? The announcements around tripling renewable energy that have been made already connects really well actually to decarbonising transport and, and, and really that strategic thinking. So what we're asking now to build on the renewables tripling is a doubling of expansion of uh, public transport, walking and cycling, so the, the low-carbon, fossil-free forms of transport, a doubling of those by 2030. If you could look into your crystal ball, what would success look like for this region, say, 10 years from now? I think it's really where people talk about the railways in a way that it's it's obvious that you would make that choice and it would be a crazy idea to take those short-haul flights anymore because it's, it's fast, it's the most convenient way to do it. So I think really just seeing everybody using it, not just a certain part of the community, you know, so everybody really using it and seeing it as as a desirable and the most convenient way to do it. Really interesting to hear about the the argument for rail travel from Lucy Anderson, who is head of sustainability at the International Union of Railways. She was there in conversation with producer Jennifer Crichton. From Expo City Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. Hey there, welcome back to The Agenda. Welcome back virtually to COP28. Well, virtually for you, we are actually here. Currently looking out over the mobility pavilion, we're in the blue zone, which is the bit where all the government ministers and delegates get to hang out. Um, Most people, if they come here, they go to the green zone. Jen has been in both. In fact, I've been in both, but Jen's been in both a bit more. Um, She says there's plenty going on on the green zone. So if you want to bring the kids up one afternoon after school or maybe Friday afternoon or this weekend, indeed, um, plenty going on, plenty of activations for to sort of basically, I guess, teach children and us as adults about the repercussions of climate change. Lots of opportunities for you to make pledges. Uh, But we are not just talking about sustainable issues on the agenda today although I have to admit it has been dominating uh, our headlines and our stories for the last 10 days or so. Uh, But we are going to turn our attention now to sport. Our editor, Chris McCarty, has all the latest headlines. He sent us this report. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Wednesday. Got to get that right. The long weekend has ensured that I've got no clue what day it is. You can tell that the festive period is upcoming when you start to lose track of what day it is. But it is Wednesday, and a happy Wednesday to you and the listeners. Busy night of football action to look ahead to in just a moment. Before that, though, let's look back 
on what we witnessed last night. Let's start at Kenilworth Road. Luton Town against Arsenal. Of course, Luton Town fancied by many to make an immediate return to the English Championship. They've actually done a little bit better than I expected at the start of this season. They were taking on league leaders Arsenal and my goodness, did they not give a wonderful account of themselves. It was three all. It was an absolute doozy of a football match. 97 minutes on the clock and Declan Rice. That is why you pay over £100 million for players of Declan Rice's ilk. Not usually known for his goal-scoring prowess, more of a destroyer in the middle of the park, but not for the first time this season. I seem to recall he scored a late winner against Man United, and he's done likewise last night. A 97th-minute winner to break Luton Town hearts. It's a result that takes Arsenal five points clear at the top of the table. Luton three, Arsenal four. The other fixture last night saw Wolverhampton Wanderers beat Burnley by a solitary goal to nil that keeps Burnley mired in relegation trouble. Of course, it's still relatively early on in the season. Still plenty of time for Burnley to extricate themselves from the situation for Wolves while the yet steady work of Gary O'Neill continues. As for tonight, well, all eyes will be on Old Trafford quarter past midnight for this one. It is a embattled Eric Ten Hag and his Manchester United side taking on Chelsea. It kickstarts what is a brutal month from Man United. They've got seven fixtures that I've got to be honest, on paper, they could well lose all seven of them. I don't expect that to happen, but... Eric Ten Hag, if ever he needed a result, it's at Old Trafford tonight against the Chelsea side who have, uh, well, shown signs in recent weeks that they are starting to turn the corner under Maurizio Pochettino. OK, they lost at Newcastle 4-1, but that 3-2 win over Brighton, that 4-4 draw against Man City a couple of weeks back as well shows that they're no mugs and they'll come to Old Trafford tonight confident of getting a result. In terms of looking a little bit further afield into the weekend, well, it's all about Sail GP. The world's best sailors are here in the country and we're building up the December 9th to 10th the Sail GP Grand Prix down there at the Rashi Port. It's going to be a fantastic weekend. I'm looking forward to it. And of course, we're broadcasting from 2 until 4. We may well be joined this week on Offscript Extra Time by a certain Sir Ben Ainsley as well. More on that, I'm sure, to come from 5 o'clock today on Offscript. That's your wrap, Georgia. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Huge thanks there to our sports editor, Chris McCarty, always signing in uh, with his latest sports headlines. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.